Breakdown is sponsored by the Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee, and on this episode we're talking about a much-loved movie that charts a sweeping journey across the American South. While you can tailor your own epic music-inspired road trip with Tennessee Music Pathways, a statewide programme that preserves the legacy of music in Tennessee. From blues to bluegrass, soul to rock and roll, you'll find plenty for your perfect soundtrack. So if you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice. Today we're discussing the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers film that was, without doubt, the most influential and important thing to happen to bluegrass music in the 21st century. The movie, which starred George Clooney... Tim Blake Nelson and John Turturro was released in 2000 and is kind of single-handedly responsible for introducing old-timey Americana music to an entire generation that includes myself. Uh, The soundtrack showcases songs from deep in the old-time and bluegrass archives and it introduced artists like Gillian Welch and the Cox family and the Fairfield Four to a global audience. But also the movie itself is just a total delight. I mean, it's so much fun. And it was the first time we all discovered that George Clooney was really good at comic acting as well. Right. It was also the first time that we all realized that George Clooney sounds just like Dan Tominsky when he sings. It's amazing. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? Um, I I love this movie. It's, it's, and it's clearly a love letter from the Coen brothers to a music that they care about as well. And there, there was nothing in their um, pre-Oh Brother catalogue that that would necessarily have told you they could make a film like this. Right. And and they, they seem to kind of really be uh, thorough with their gathering up of all of the biggest stars in the American acoustic old-time bluegrass world and putting them all in front of microphones and, and getting them to play for this record it's like it's this is a who's who of the year 2000 in american music oh they totally did their research they they and um and obviously they used t-bone Burnett, the producer um as the as their kind of uh i guess their channel into that world as, as their expert in that world and he'd been producing um the first couple of gillian welch's records uh, and he he had done research for Coen Brothers before musical research before he did the music for the Big Lebowski. Yeah, which apparently Man of Constant Sorrow was originally slated to be on. Uh, T Bone found that song and offered it up to them for Big Lebowski. Obviously, he never made it, and that. Well, it got its second chance. <laughs> And then some. I, I guess it just—it probably just really wasn't right for the dude. Was... No, the dude—the dude is is more chill than Constant Sorrow. So this was the Coen Brothers' first what they called soundtrack movie. In other words, the music came first. T Bone Burnett worked on the songs and 
everything had been recorded before they shot the movie. So the actual scenes themselves ended up being influenced by what was happening in the music, which is pretty cool. And you can see how important that all is from literally the opening shots of the movie. Before we even see anything, you hear the clink of the rocks um, as the chain gang are, uh, you know, doing this kind of rhythmic um, clinking uh, of their, what are they, pickaxes on the rocks, breaking the rocks. I just think the fact that the whole movie starts with just a beat, just like a rhythmic beat, is really cool and tells you how important music's going to be to the whole thing. And and all of the all of the kind of scenes and the the kind of the the characters that are that are surrounding the main characters the kind of the, the communities that they the main characters pass through are kind of embodied by the music throughout the film. So at the beginning you get the 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 black chain gang and that's kind of that's they, they are they are holding that first scene and then when they're down at the the river getting baptized there's this whole kind of religious community and they're singing down to the river to pray and then you've got these kind of weird political rallies and there's these little family bands playing so each kind of scene also is given its musical context in a way that really kind of uh, i think is trying to reflect the 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 emotional makeup of the communities that they're passing through as the story goes on it's really great yeah one of the things i love about the uh, juxtaposition of the first two songs the james carter and the prisoners uh, singing poe lazarus uh, and then the immediate cut to Big Rock County Mountain is that it sets up this tension between the harsh reality of the chain gang and the harsh reality of America and the Depression, and then the the escapist fantasy of um, the you know these these hobos. Well, in their in their case, little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. It's it's beautiful, and it and it to me that sums up the movie. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. T-Bone Burnett said about Man of Constant Sorrow that he thought that song also captured that tone which was epic and dead serious on one hand and comic and affable on the other Mm -hmm. so i think that's entirely what they were going for obviously we need to talk about man of constant sorrow because that is it's it's the song that the entire movie uh is based around uh that the plot hinges on and it's the song that dan tominsky will now be asked to play for the rest of his life Constant sorrow all through his days. I am a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my days. Has that song become 
a ball and chain at all? Like, do you have to sing it? Do you get requests for it? Oh God, you know what? Quite the opposite. I I would have to say I would I would say not only is it not a ball and chain, but the thought of like the. I grew up playing a type of music that a lot of people, you know, it's it's a it's kind of a niche music. It's not, you know, it's not for the for the big crowds typically. If you if you play music for a living and you are lucky enough to have someone, you know, love a song that you do and have a song mean that much to that many people, and you don't love that song, man, you probably got you probably have deeper issues that that might suggest you shouldn't be playing music. Um, I've never played that song, and I've played it every single show I've done since I've never played that song where it does not get a reaction. And for most of this past 20 years, honestly, it's the last song we do. We end our show with it because there's just no, it's just hard to top it still. Yeah. 20 years later, st- people still in the crowd will get up, dance along. People are, are walking up in the front, pulling their fake beards and, you know, yeah. and doing the and doing the thing like... No, oh my God! I, I would give I would give anything to have something else that would make people that happy. I that, I would never I would never say ball and chain. If there's an opposite of a ball and chain, <laughs> that's what that song is. Helium balloon. It's a helium balloon. Thank you. <laughs> a zeppelin of sorts. Yes. <laughs> In a situation that I've never been in, I mean, even recording for the movie that, you know, we didn't use headphones and we didn't use, you know, modern microphone. I mean, we used old microphones, old instruments. We recorded it. They wanted it to be 100% organic and pure. There were no overdubs. There were no tricks or fancy, you know, there was just no studio trickery. You had to sit down and, and do it start to finish. You really yeah. were just singing into a cam. I was wow. singing into a can, yeah. We didn't use that can, but you know, I was I was singing into a microphone of that period, yes, with a guitar from that period. Yeah, they made sure all the instruments we played were yeah. were right, were to spec. So it was it was interesting and um we had to you know, we had to think about what was going on visually in the movie during parts of it because there's you know, a fight broke out and the song had to stop and then it had to kick back in and it had to start but so there was a lot of uh, direction you know, visual direction of what was going on while we're playing. They kept describing what we were supposed to be portraying. And, and T-Bone, I remember he kept saying, look, you just, he says, we're, you know, it's, it's gotta have more like you just stole a chicken. It's like you've, you've sold your soul to the devil for your musical ability. And it's, and it's, you're, you're desperate. And if you really kill this song, you know, if you can like really just rock it out on the, you know, but rock hasn't been invented, but it's like rock and roll, like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, as he said, it's just, he kept explaining, explaining, explaining. And finally I grabbed the guitar because I, you know, I had an idea and I just, I kind of just put it out of tune. I tuned the string way down, left it kind of a little sloppy and played it really rattly. Like, you know, the version, yeah. the version is and within seconds, you know, they all stood up and, and it was funny because they, that was the first thing they said. They said, can you play and sing at the same time? <laughs> and I found myself after having done this, you know, for decades of playing and singing at the same time, thinking about it and going, I don't know. <laughs> like I was like, cause it was, a, you know, I was like, I, I mean, I, I do this, but I will see. 
when I called my wife at the time to tell her that I was going to get this voiceover, she was very excited because she's a big Clooney fan. She goes, oh, a voiceover, that is so great. That's great. What is that? <laughs> and I explained that, you know, in this case, when you're at the movies, you'll be looking up at the big screen, seeing George Clooney singing, but hearing my voice coming out. And without hesitation, she said, Dan, that's my fantasy. Kudos to, to Clooney. His job was way, way, way harder than my job. I got to sing it, you know, just however I sing it. Mm-hmm. He had to learn someone else's every little nuance and phrasing, and he sold it. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. He, I can't imagine how many times that poor guy listened to that song. There was a point that he wanted to sing it. We were filming when when I was made aware of this, and we had already, of course, finished all the music, and it was done. We were filming in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and we were we were working on the scene where they ride that guy out on the rail you know the big the big scene where the fight breaks out where the band is playing constant sorrow and there was a day off we we filmed for one day there was a day off and and uh t-bone came up and said listen he said uh clooney wants to sing the song he said would you go in the studio with him tomorrow we have a studio rented you know contrary to what i you know a lot of people i've, I've heard a lot of comments you know clooney could sing i mean he he could have done this if he demanded it and said no just I, let me do it it would have been fine, like he, he could sing. Yeah. But part of this gig was, if we skip back, it had to be one take, start to finish. There were no punches, there were no, if you made a mistake, it was on there forever. So I think that was what ultimately led to the to what happened, because we went in the studio and I played it with him and he was singing it fine, you know, but we got through, you know, second or third verse, he made a mistake or sang the wrong word and he goes, ah, we need to start it again. So, you know, I started again and he sang a little bit less and made a mistake. And then I started again. And I didn't probably start that song, but maybe three or four or five times max. And each time he sang a little less. And after that fourth or fifth time, you know, he took his headphones off and walked out. He said, uh, he says, Tominsky, I don't know what we're doing in here. He goes, listen, I'm going to make you a deal. I'll act. You sing. <laughs> and he shook my hand, right? I was completely disappointed. <laughs> like I thought, I thought, man, you know, like you didn't, you're not even trying. Flyway is another one of those songs that, you know, any one of my my non-bluegrass-loving friends will now know. Um, and yeah. Alison Krauss and Gillian Welch's version is yeah. is is now the it's now the, the uh, what's the word the sort of high the water quintessential, mark. Quintessential, yeah, yeah. Nobody has ever made old-time music as sexy as Emily Emily Lou Harris and. Alison Krauss and Gillian Welch in Don't Need Nobody But The Baby. That is a very, very beautiful song. And the scene of the movie? It's... <laughs> it's Holy moly. It's incredible. And considering that just before that, I think, uh, Alison Krauss and Gillian Welch have sung I'll Fly Away, which sounds so ethereal and otherworldly. And then you add Emmy Lou Harris's voice to the mix and suddenly it's something uh-huh. completely different. It's so much more kind of flesh and blood and earthy. Yep. And, and 
and is there a saw in the background there's a little whistle whistling sound yeah i think might be a saw go to sleep you little babe go to sleep you little babe go to sleep you little babe your mama's gone away and your dad's gonna stay don't leave nobody but the baby and then uh then our, our main character gets turned into a toad. Yeah. Causing the most quotable line of the movie. We thought you was a toad. There's a lot of folklore involved in the... that's referenced in the movie as well. And, of course, one of those amazing pieces of folklore is the idea of selling your soul to the devil at the crossroads... Something that fiddle players know all about because... I mean, I sold my soul uh, in in 1999, still waiting for the the magical fiddle player. Anyways, continue. (laughs) Yeah, It's, it's, it's always been slightly associated with violins, this idea that the devil plays the the fiddle, so it's the fiddle's instrument. I think they used to call it the devil's box. That used to be a name for the violin. Paganini definitely sold his soul to the devil. Yeah. A lot of folklore around that. And in, and in the movie, uh, the character Tommy Johnson is picked up at the crossroads, having apparently just sold his soul for the ability to play guitar real good. Chris Thomas King, uh, Tommy Johnson, uh, is playing guitar and singing on the great hard time killing floor blues, which he plays and sings around a campfire in the movie, I think. At the campfire scene, when I'm singing Hard Time Killing Floor Blues, uh, that song um, is, is live to a video. When they say action, that's those crickets are real, you know? And that's a real fire, and we're really sitting there, and I'm really playing and singing that song. And that is uh, that was like 3 in the morning or something out on the Disney Ranch, uh, the Ponderosa, where they used to shoot these cowboys and stuff. And we're out there in the middle of the night, and uh, it's like a real... Uh, folk recording where you just go out in the field with a you know in in the woods somewhere and find some some rustic musician and ask him to play and sing a song for you that's pretty much what that is first role i'm not a person that's easily impressed but i was definitely impressed when i showed up on the set and uh i had long dreadlocks like dreadlocks that run down my back i had been all through the 80s i i had dreadlocks and um but i didn't cut my hair for the audition or anything but they told me that once i had the role you know uh, i would have to cut my hair so i could look period so um, so that morning, I said, well, I'm not going to do it until the day that we film, just in case, you know, something happens. But 
Uh, so I, after my 5 a.m. haircut or whatever it was, I, I showed up on the set. And the first day I showed up and got out the van and went over, you know, um, and there was this guy in overalls, uh, greasy guy, you know, came over. Hey, how you doing? Uh, welcome to the set. This is, this is great, isn't it? A little small talk. And then he asked me what I would like some coffee. Went and got made me some coffee and brought it back to me. And then I heard somebody say, you know, George, uh, you know, you need it on the set or whatever, you know. So I showed up on the set and George Clooney was making me coffee and making me feel comfortable. And, you know, he was a, just a, a, a real pro. And so when it was time to do scenes with him that day, you know, it was, um, you know, I, I felt comfortable. So, and that's the whole, and that's how you get a good scene. You, 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 you try to make people feel comfortable, but I've, I won't name names in this podcast, but I've done some movies with some other folks. They won't show, they won't even show up, you know, for their, if they're not doing a tight shot on their face, they're not even going to show up to run their lines. You know, um, it was a, it was my first experience. I thought all movies was going to be that way, but, um, but that was a very special uh, thing. And the stars just lined up for us because I think I went out to dinner um, with uh, T-Bone Burnett. We were in Jackson, Mississippi filming. And he invited me out to lunch and or something like that. And we talked about the music. And uh, I think I was trying to pitch him one of my tunes, John Law Burns on a liquor store or something like that. But they wanted to use all period pieces. And he was telling me that the soundtrack was gonna be a big deal and it was gonna sell, you know, millions of records. And I and if, if I'm not mistaken, he told me it was gonna sell 10 million copies sitting there. And of course, I just thought he was nuts, you know? It's like this kind of music, nobody. You know, I've been making these records. I mean, of course, Ralph Stanley and everybody else been making it. I mean, we don't even think of anything like a platinum record, you know? So, but he was right. I mean, he really, you know, he's kind of a cocky guy. If you don't really know him, he comes off kind of cocky and way too self-assured, you know? But uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and then and with a name like T-Bone Burnett, you know, excuse me, uh, what's your real name? But but everything that he said and all the choices and things that he made as the music supervisor and the producer of the album, you know, came to fruition. So it was just like I said, it's one of those things where the, the stars just lined up and and it, I've never been a part of anything like that since. Oh, dear. Oh, Dan, won't you spare me over till another year? If Man of Constant Sorrow was the most recognisable song from the movie and the one that probably, you know, now gets most asked for every time a bluegrass band gets up on stage, uh, the second most recognisable one would be Ralph Stanley singing Oh, Death. Uh it certainly completely uh, revived his career and brought him to a, an entire new audience. But I think it's uh, it's kind of a shocker watching it back to remember that this song that you know made made Ralph Stanley apparently a lot of money um, was actually coming out of the uh, on screen. It's coming out of the mouth of a grandmaster of the KKK, which is a pretty difficult thing to watch. Very difficult to watch and also um, must have been quite a shock for for Ralph Stanley and anyone involved in the making of this record. I can speak for everyone else 
that didn't know when we saw it coming out and it was it was we it was a, there was a whole like in the theater even you didn't know what what that song was being used for until you saw it no we did we had a script so the the ones who who read through this script knew but you still you know but you still don't know you still just you, you think you know you don't know <laughs> yeah. you see it and like jaws just drop and it's like wow like like really wow yeah <laughs> right um Again, the Coens have a way to take the most sensitive things like that and still somehow make them palatable to where you don't walk away feeling ultimately offended or, you know, really horrible about it. So, so thank you for how they treated it so that, you know, we didn't, we didn't have to have any blemish on, on Ralph. A scene like that, you know, for a black actor can really, uh, it can be, if it's not presented properly, if it's not handled well, you know, it could, it could. It can be a scene that you regret even being involved in, you know. Um, but somehow they handled that uh, in a way that um, what people could could see that scene and they can see the clan and see me, you know, stressed out about you know what's getting ready to happen and laugh about it. And you know, I mean, how do you even do that? You know, people. People laugh at that scene, and it's not even uh, controversial to laugh at it, you know, because it, it's funny. You know, we were clowning around. I, I, I think I have photos of myself posing, you know, with all these clan guys, you know, in different poses, making fun. I'll fix your feet till you can't walk. I'll lock your jaw till you can't talk. I'll close your eyes so you can't see this very hour. Come and go with me. Ralph Stanley didn't necessarily know that his voice was going to be pinned on to a grandmaster of the KKK. Um, but further, you know, what it did for Ralph Stanley's career, uh, I have a story about that, which is that I, I got to see Ralph Stanley play many times before he passed. And the first time I saw him play was at the Freshgrass Festival in about 2009 or 10. Now, Freshgrass is a festival in Massachusetts, in Western Mass. And he did his whole set, and he was great. And he sang a lot of songs. And his closer, of course, was a solo O-Death. And the crowd went wild for it. And he got off stage, and they were going crazy. And his encore, he comes back up, sings O-Death again, exactly the same way. Crowd goes wild again. He walks off stage. They won't let him get away with it. Second encore, Ralph comes up. And sings O Death a third time, three times in a row. Every time the audience got more and more excited, this song became Ralph Stanley's anthem. It was just such a huge hit for him. He wrote in his biography that he originally was asked to accompany that was banjo. That was how it was originally recorded. Uh, TiVo wanted him to play banjo in the background. And it was Ralph's idea to do it a cappella. It was a good idea, Ralph. It was a good idea, Ralph. Although in the movie scene itself, you do get um, this kind of beat. There's something going on in the background mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes it a lot more sinister, even yeah. more sinister. Yeah, because it really is. It's it's not a sinister song. It's a very kind of pensive, introverted moment, really. That you know. 
Do you he's, think he's... it's not sinister? I mean, it's got it's got lines that it's got lines where death is saying, "I'll fix your feet so you can't walk. I'll lock your jaw so you can't talk. I'll close your eyes so you can't see." I find that frightening. But it is frightening. I don't see it as sinister. I I think it's legitimately somebody contemplating what death does to a person. You got to go to the lonesome valley. You. Speaking of powerful songs, the Fairfield Four's Lonesome Valley is another great kind of rumbling moment on the record, second to last track, and it's just, it's huge, and it's its this wall of voices that just, it, it really is, uh, you know, just like in the end of the movie, not to give it away, but the whole valley is flooded and these walls of water come over. The Fairfield Four singing Lonesome Valley has that same impact. There's often multiple layers of things going on with the song choices. I I think it's very clever the way that um, Keep on the Sunny Side is the song that is attached to... Um, it's, it's attached to the political campaign of Homer Stokes, who's, who's, who's the reform candidate uh, for, for, the, for this governor position. And, uh, you know, you feel like he's supposed to be the good guy. And, of course, later it's revealed that he's the guy under the KKK hood. Uh, and there's so there's this real kind of cruel humour and irony in the fact that he's got these, you know, uh, very wholesome looking people up on stage. <laughs> there's a dark and a troubled side of life. But there's a bright. that the keep on the sunny side was not written by the carter family it's often credited to ap carter but apparently it was written in 1899 by ada blenkhorn and it's actually about a literal sunny side she wrote it as a hymn um because her nephew was in a wheelchair and used to like to be pushed down the sunny side of the street Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If we'll keep on the sunny side of life. There are so many amazing musicians on this soundtrack that there's it's hard to mention them all the people we haven't talked about yet include the little girls the Peasel sisters 
um, who in reality, they're not seen on screen because there's there's young actors playing the Peasel sisters. Uh, sorry, there's young actors playing the Warby girls, i.e. George Clooney's children on screen. But the, the girls singing in the highways and in the hedges were Leah and Hannah and Sarah Peasel. And um, as a result of this soundtrack, this th- I think they were six and nine and eleven or something. They ended up going on tour for ten years. In the highways, in the hedges, in the highways, in the hedges, in the highways, in the hedges. I'll be somewhere working for my Lord. I'll be somewhere. Um, I think you can probably also hear them on Down to the River to Pray because Alison Krauss is backed by their own church choir in that. Wow. The first Baptist church choir of White House, Tennessee, which is where the Peasel sisters uh, were singing at the time. They also sang on the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit. And they're now two of them, they're obviously all grown up now, uh, two of them are singer-songwriters in Nashville and the other one is a worship leader for a church in Nashville. that we see on stage in the political rallies that are actual bands are the whites who sing keep on the sunny side and then the cox family sing i am weary um, but they actually had to take a a, a huge um furlough from from music straight after oh brother where art thou which you know it was quite tragic really they had just had this huge hit and been in this movie uh, and um, almost immediately after the movie came out, uh, the paterfamilias of the Cox family, as uh, as her brother would call him, Willard and his wife, Marie, were in a car accident. Um, they were hit by a, a logging truck and um, it left Willard in a wheelchair um, and Marie was pretty badly injured as well. And the family just stopped, stopped touring, stopped performing and um, just went went home to care for the parents uh so they ended up not recording again for um literally over a decade something like 13 years um but they are now touring again with Arthur Krauss I think we should mention the cameos mention the cameos gillian welch can be seen on screen uh, as the as she's there just for a moment she's a woman standing asking a shopkeeper if they've got a copy of soggy bottom boys yeah and they don't because they've they, sold out they've sold out but yeah i would not have known that was gillian welch if i hadn't gone and looked that up what was it like being on set 
and actually having to put on the costume and stand in front of the cameras. Like, I love doing that stuff anyway. If I didn't play music, I would want to act. Like, I, I, that's, that's totally fun for me. But I can remember dressing up like everything, again, very authentic. So I had, um, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. My pants came up to just <laughs> below, you know, my, 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 my boobs, right? <laughs> pants are up here. Had these little shirt suspenders, right? And it was, by the time I put everything on, and of course, then they shaved, basically shaved my head and shaved my beard off. And I said, I really would like to keep the mustache if I could. And they said, oh, no problem. You can keep the mustache. And as he was doing, Clooney walks behind me. And Clooney said, hey, what if you give one of them little pencil mustaches? And the guy goes, oh, great idea. You know, so there goes the mustache, right? So I had this little tiny, you know, line and head shaved and beard shaved. And and then after they did all that, they put a hat on me. So it didn't matter. I didn't need the haircut. But anyway, so I did all this stuff. And I remember I walked in and I was in front of the mirror. In the little, you know, in the little Honeywell, in the little, you know, the, the dressing room that they give you, a little camper dressing room. And I had the damnedest tickle in my stomach. Like, I was laughing. I could not walk out into the public yet. Like, it was, I started to go out. I remember reaching for the door, and I was really laughing so hard, and I had to stop. I was like, okay, come on, Timmy, get over <laughs> Like, it was just, it was so weird, because with the haircut, with everything, it was, I was a different person. And I'm kind of in character, because I'm not able to really perform it as Chris Thomas King. That's something that people might miss about my uh, role. It's kind of understated. I mean, I'm not playing myself, you know. Uh, this is a fictional character, and I was directed to act, and, and therefore I had to sing and play uh, almost in a way that was not my style. I mean, I was doing rap blues and hip-hop blues and, and you know, rocking out with, with my Marshall amps and stuff on my Stratocaster when I got the call. So... Um, I wasn't playing finger picking uh, blues, you know. I mean, I could play it a little bit, but it really wasn't my thing because I was going to play it with a slide guitar that piece. But T Bone said he didn't want a slide; he wanted a finger pick. And they they sent me to Nashville to work with a guitarist, a Canadian guy uh, named Colin Linden. And I spent a couple of days in those in, on, on Music Row in one of these little songwriter rooms, where because he had studied all this finger picking stuff from all the Delta guys and and uh, they wanted me to spend a day with him and we, we struck up a nice friendship and he you know showed me how he approached the style and I took some things from him and uh, put my own thing to it and came up with that arrangement for it so it's a, it's a unique arrangement for Hard Time Killing for Blues and uh, it's a song that almost nobody had ever heard before then it was a very obscure Skip James song, you know, I didn't know a lot about Skip James. I didn't know, I didn't know a lot about uh, Tommy Johnson. I almost knew nothing about Tommy Johnson, other than you know the Can He tune and things like that. But I'm not, a, I wasn't like a blues scholar or anything, you know. I never appreciated their anthropologic, you know, approach to to my culture, you know. And uh, it's like I'm a musician. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get on MTV or make it to Soul Train. You know, and you guys, you know, want to present me like I'm some kind of specimen in a zoo, you know, and and, I'm, and so these anthropologists and these folklorists like the John Lomaxes and stuff, they irritate me because they distort, you know, the music culture I come from. I think it's important to note that this movie is guilty of a classic Hollywood trope of the white savior, the the white 
White savior complex. The white savior that goes in and, and saves the African-American uh, and makes all of the white audiences feel great about uh, that that particular moment And uh, you're in the also movie. concerned about the fact that the prisoners in who sing Poe Lazarus are obviously never credited because at the time that the song was collected, Alan Lomax did not you know, collect their names. So the only named musician on that song is James Carter. Yeah. So the, the, you believe there's a sort of element of cultural appropriation. There, there's an, I, I think there's an element of cultural appropriation, and it's also uh, indicative of a, of a larger pattern of American music history uh, and, and Alan Lomax being part of that. Although that- I would say in his defense that when the movie came out and when the soundtrack came out and became a success, his daughter uh, went off specifically to try and track down uh, James Carter and succeeded. And yeah. they they found him living in Chicago, 76 years old. Uh, he didn't even remember having recorded this song and um, they were able to present him with the first of what turned out to be many royalty checks. And that's that's great um and and i think that that that's great but it's also the very very rare exception to the case uh in regards to a lot of lomax's recordings and a lot of just uh american uh, african-american music in general of the 20th century my latest son is second phase my race is nearly run my strong Trials now are past. My triumph has begun. There's often a bit of discussion around this record um, about the fact that people refer to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou as the Coen Brothers bluegrass movie, and people from the scene will tell you, actually, you know, this isn't bluegrass because the whole thing's set in the Depression era. Bluegrass hadn't been invented. This is this is pre-war music and it's pre-bluegrass music. But it's definitely um, the kind of uh, mountain music that was the precursor to bluegrass. And you can hear bluegrass rhythms mm-hmm. all over the shop on this record. And... Uh... Another really cool part about this movie and soundtrack is that after it was all over, um, there was a tour put together that included almost all of the musicians from the soundtrack, and they did a a big tour together. They made a DVD uh, documentary about it called Down from the Mountain, Um, and it seems like that was a really big moment in, in a lot of their careers as well and something that they all really enjoyed. This movie ended up being number one on the pop charts which is incredible when you think about it but it it took its time to get there the the soundtrack came out obviously alongside the movie in 2000 the movie had left theaters by august 2001 and the soundtrack didn't actually become number one until march 2002 two years later wow apparently that's the longest climb to number one in the pop charts that there's ever been. Also, quick question for you. Yep. There had only been one other soundtrack to win Best Album at the Grammys before Oh Brother. Can you guess what it was? I'm going to go ahead and guess The Bodyguard. You're right. Really? Yeah. I'm only guessing that because I know that Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You is on that, and that was one of the biggest songs ever. But I'm right. You're right. I'm actually right. This this is a real guess, folks. I'm going to give myself some credit for that one. 
Um, while we talk about awards, I would like to say that I feel like there should be a category in the Oscars or something just for Tim Blake Nelson's face because that face deserves its own little accolade. I wonder who would win that. He would, he, he would, he would stand a good chance of I think winning he it. he would stand a good chance. What Old Brother did for me, and I'm sure it did the same for the other musicians on the album, it, it, it became such a phenomenon that we broke out of our little niches, you know. Um, you know, I was I was at, at I was like, kind of like a cult, you know, like a people in the blues circles knew who I was, like that very small community. But um, instead of just being in Living Blues magazine, I found myself being written about in People magazine and Entertainment Weekly, and you know, uh, the New York Times or whatever, you know, Time magazine. It really uh, broke me out of of being just a blues artist who is supposed to carry on this tradition to where I could be more of a kind of be more of a free artistic artist where I can create, you know, blues art. I can certainly attest that crowds for bluegrass festivals, let's say like at the time I was in um, southwestern part of Virginia. The festivals that were little local festivals that were used to having, you know, they, they had been running for years and they had a predictable, you know, crowd. I mean, everything tripled. Attendance tripled. Man, after that, we started seeing, you know, we did, we just another complete demographic. I mean, we started seeing, every, you know, kids with rock and roll T-shirts and spiked hairs and, you know, chains in their face. Like people yeah. we never saw, like in our normal crowd, they were just, it struck young people, old people, you know, educated people, you know, country redneck people. It just, it drew from every corner. It was amazing to watch. Do you get people quoting the movie at you? I feel like you might oh, get forever. people calling you Big Dan, for sure. <laughs> so, well, what's wrong what's the matter big dan i get i do i get that um it's neat to be attached to, to something like that when people do that yeah it just again it, it brings it back and you you remember that wow i was pretty yeah. pretty damn lucky you're <laughs> you a know? dapper dan man i am a dapper dan man forevermore i still have my dapper dan can so thank you very much to dan Tominski for uh coming over on a friday afternoon and chatting with us for a couple of hours not only about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, but also about the best bourbon in the world. Also, thank you very much to Chris Thomas King for chatting with us about this record. That's all for this episode. Thank you to our sponsor, The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And don't forget to check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip now. Yeah.